Father God, your greatness and our lack of greatness is an infinite divide. And we know from Scripture, we know from just, I mean, who you are intrinsically and who we are, that there's no way that we can bridge that gap. And that today when we gather together as a church and we love on each other and we seek to encounter you through your word and through worship, we are expectant and hopeful and trusting in you to bridge that gap for us, Father, to come and to saturate this place with your presence, um, to remove every distraction, everything in us internally and outside of us, Father, that would keep us from hearing from you. And that goes especially for me, Father that you would transmit your word, your truth clearly through me um, and that there wouldn't be any error or, or falseness, Father, that you would remove that from my tongue. I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. We give you all the glory. Amen. So if you get your Bibles, um, please open them to Colossians 3. We're going to start on verse 8 today. And uh, before we begin this text, this is our last week in this series. We've been in a series that's been looking about how to fight sin, how we fight sin in our lives, which um, as we've walked through Paul's letter, this is where we've come at the center of the letter. He's dealing with this idea of sanctification, and he's explaining how and why believers are called to fight their sin. And I want to just give you a panorama of the last few weeks in this series so that we have our minds calibrated for what we're going to be dealing with today. The fight against sin began with us looking about at what it means to hold fast to Christ, to hold fast to Jesus alone as our only source of, source of growth. And we saw that to do that, we need to trust him. We need to lay aside every weight, every encumbrance, every sin, and we needed to run this race that we called life. And we do that by putting our faith and trust in Christ Jesus. That's the beginning of this process. And what it looks like to run this race of life in faith is seeking the things that are above. That's what we saw when we first got into Colossians 3. We need to seek the things that are above. Seek Christ himself, seek his kingdom, and seek the glory that's going to be given to us at the, the resurrection. That's how we run. That's how we're conformed into the image of Christ Jesus. And last week, we saw that this conformity to Christ's image doesn't just get zapped into us. We don't just download it. It is an act of pursuit of us toward Jesus in the Bible, in scriptures, and in prayer. These are essential. So we need to behold the glory of Christ in his word and our souls then begin to look like Jesus. We begin to resemble who he is as we come to see him more and more and believe in his promises. So at that moment of temptation last week, we looked at the fact that we don't trust in our own ability, our own strength to fight against that temptation. Instead, we trust in God's promises, and we believe that Jesus Christ is better than anything that the sin promises us, anything that the sin promises us. So that's where we are now. And this week, we're really looking at the sum of all those weeks kind of put together. It's the capstone, and it really explains to us why sanctification should happen in the heart uh, of a believer. And it tells us the source of that sanctification and really how it affects how we view other people, especially other people who do not look like us or talk like us or sound like us and have no real connection with us physically. How do we love people uh, in that category? And so let's jump into Colossians 3. We're going to be looking through uh, verses 8 through 11. So we'll start with verse 8. This is what it says. But now you must put them all away. 
anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. And so last week we had these two lists that Paul had of sins that we commit, dispositions of our heart, and uh, one was in verse 5 and one was in verse 8. This is verse 8 that we just read right now. In verse 8, if you see it, it kind of bleeds into verse 9. Verse 8 says this, put away all anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk. Paul's telling us to put that away. Don't do it anymore. And then he says in verse 9, which we just read, not to lie to one another. We, we should not lie to one another. And last week, um, this list that we, the second list in these two lists, depicts the kind of disposition we have naturally in the human heart to look at others lower than we would look at ourselves. Loving our neighbor in the natural human heart doesn't come naturally. What comes naturally more often than not is ignoring our neighbor. And we said that this isn't an isolated incident. This is something lo- uh, that's localized around s- certain people. This is really the disposition of the human heart. Um, we know that it's right to be good to others, and we try to be good to others, um, and it should be that way, but it doesn't come naturally to us. And so we tend to think less of people than we ought to. But then Paul connects this statement with this idea of do not lie to one another, which is interesting because it speaks to really what is at the center of all fractured human relationships. If you know a relationship that is broken, if you know something that is hurting, a relationship that's hurting, it's generally because of this. There is a lack of somewhere along the line of sincere honesty and genuine heartfelt truthfulness between the people that are involved. People who are involved here aren't being true with each other, not being transparent about the problems that they're, they're facing. And in some ways, this isn't really an isolated situation that deals with just broken relationships. This affects everything in life. Um, we, it's easier for us to omit the full truth about who we are than to tell it to somebody. It's easier. Because we've got a lot of stuff we're probably embarrassed about, we don't want to talk about. But Paul says here, don't lie. If you're in Christ, that's not who you are anymore. Be honest with each other. And he's not mainly talking about how we assess um, other people's lives, how we're honest with them about what they're going through. He's talking mainly in this passage about how we assess our own lives. So humility isn't lying uh, or keeping what is broken in us a secret and in darkness. Humility, true humility in this situation, is actually embracing the pain of exposing things that are failures in your life in order to be real and true with people around you. And this is tough. This is really, really tough. But Paul is saying at the beginning of this text, this is the pathway to real, authentic community, Christian community, Christian fellowship, which is where Paul is headed in the next part of Colossians that we're going to be getting to next week. But here's the interesting thing. Paul doesn't just tell us to be honest. He could just have said, be honest. And no human's going to say, uh, are you sure I should be honest? Is that a good idea? Everyone's going to agree with that, but he doesn't do that. The Bible often gives us reasons for why we should do these things. And here's a reason here. He wants us to know why 
honesty is a part of the Christian life, why it's a texture of the Christian life. And Paul's reason is that we have put off the old self and its practices, and we have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So the Christian life is not a decision to be moral all of a sudden. That's not it at all. That may be another religion, but that's not the Christian religion. Christian life is that on the, old, on the cross, our old self died. When Christ rose from the dead, we got a new self, and now the Christian life is lived out of acting the part, living the life, living out that, that new self. And this word self is actually more accurately translated man. The old man and the new man, and it's a reflection of human nature. The old man is fallen and broken, and its practices are sinful and wicked. And Paul says, that's not you anymore. If you are in Christ, if you trust in Jesus, you are, even if you don't feel like it, you are completely new. You are completely new. You don't belong to that old nature anymore. So, therefore, Put on the new nature. Literally, clothe yourself in the reality that you can't see right now, but is really there. And this new man we are clothed with is none other than Christ Jesus. None other than Jesus. Romans 5 says, through one man, sin entered the world. That's the old man. That's Adam. Through one man, sin entered the world. So he's saying that there are two humanities that exist in this world. There are those who are in Adam and those who are in Christ. And those who are in Adam are part of the old humanity, fallen and broken. And those who are in Christ are part of the new humanity. And Paul's telling us, you don't belong to Adam anymore. You do not belong to Adam anymore. You belong to Christ. And so you're not the same. You're not the same. This new man isn't governed by his old nature but instead he is constantly being renewed. And the new humanity is being renewed, according to this text, it's being brought to fullness in the knowledge after the image of its creator. So think about what that means for a second. Paul is saying that we become what we behold. We are conforming to a knowledge we have of Christ Jesus, and we get that knowledge here. Our conformity to Christ is seeing him, and he is most clearly displayed in the scriptures. And so the question we have, really, when we get to a text like this, is do we actively spend time, individually and, and together in groups, searching the, the scriptures, saturating our hearts with what God says in this word about who Jesus is, about the truth in this book, if you want to be like Jesus, Paul is saying here, this, this book cannot collect dust. It can't. It simply can't. Lucy, I love you. <laughs> She's singing. She still thinks we're doing worship right now. <laughs> um, um, and so this is the heart of sanctification, looking at the scriptures and letting that vision of Christ encompass everything that we do, everything we are, everything we want to be, becoming like Christ through seeing and, and really savoring his glory through the Holy Spirit in God's word. But Paul doesn't stop there. And this is where the, the text that we've got here switches from being immediately practical 
to being very introspective and taking a lot of really thought, he says he, he, wants to make, he basically wants to make something very clear about the new man. Listen to what he says in verse 11. He's specifically talking about the new man in Christ Jesus. He's looking across the Colossian church in his mind because he's not there. And he's thinking, this is the situation that I want to speak into. This is where the new man really needs to be expressed. He says in verse 11, Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Now, why do this? When I get to something like this in the scriptures, I just ask the question, why did Paul take a right turn here? He's going in a direction of sanctification, and now he, he's dealing with these ideas of anger and hostility and deceit, and then he goes and leads into these ethnic distinctions, like <laughs> which is what these mainly are. These are ethnic distinctions. There's some religious practices here with circumcision. There's some that are connected to social status, like slave and free. But Paul's mainly engaging here ethnic and racial distinctions within the body of Christ, within the church. And we know this because he's listing off not only Greeks and Jews, which is the largest ethnic dis- distinction in this book, um, the most significant distinction in history. God's people have promised ethnically and the Gentile nations. But he's also mentioning barbarians and Scythians, which if you were a first century uh, person, you would know that these two groups, barbarians and Scythians, are almost universally despised. Nobody likes them. Um, There's some people who believe, based on historical documentation, that Scythians actually drank the blood of horses. And so they were, not, they were not appreciated by, especially by Greeks and by people who were educated, but they were considered violent and uneducated people. So why, Paul, mention barbarians? Why mention Scythians at this point in the letter? What does this have to do with fighting sin? What does this have to do with fighting malice and anger? Well, the obvious connection, some of you have probably already made it, is that there is a proclivity in the human heart, to not love people who are different from us. There is a, a, a disposition of the human soul to actually look at people who are different from us, whether it's cultural, whether it's ethnic, whatever it might be, and to look down on them. And the average first century person responds to a Scythian or a barbarian with anger or bigotry. That's the average first century person. So Paul says this cannot be. For those who are in Christ, this cannot be the way. And we'll see why in just a second. But before we do that, I really want to look at the, I want to ask this question. I want to, I want to ask, what is it about things like ethnic and racial diversity in the natural human heart that leads to this kind of response? This isn't the universal response. We, we've seen exceptions to this rule. But what is the disposition generally that is sort of the source or the fountainhead of this kind of enmity? Well, in order to see that, we need to go all the way back to the beginning of this book. One of the first commandments God gives Adam in Genesis 1.28 is to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. He tells him, fill the earth. And we don't know how effective Adam was in that, because, but we do know this, that, that God has to give Noah the same exact statement, the same exact command. He has to remind Noah to do the same after the flood. Apparently, it wasn't very effective. 
Genesis 9-1 says this, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. So God is having to remind humanity because he knows they're not inclined to do this. They're not inclined to obey this command. They're not inclined to fill the earth. They're resistant to this, to building distinct communities that reflect God's glory in different parts of the world. They're resistant to that. And that's where ethnic diversity happens. That's where racial and cultural diversity happens. So you see first that race isn't an accident. That, that we have cultures across the world is not an accident. It isn't an anomaly. Our cultural and physical distinctions across this planet, due to lineage, genetics, geography, whatever else might be contributing factors, are all part of God's design. They are part of his design. They're not an accident. God has from day one pursued this, commanded this very thing because the humanity that he placed in Adam at the very beginning needed to fill the earth in order to have full expression. It needed to fill the earth. Every shade of color, every sound of language was God's plan. Every unique and healthy cultural reality within distinct people groups stems from this very command of God. And we know this is true because of where we're all headed. If you go to the very back of this book and you look at Revelation 7, you see this passage. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This is heaven. This is worship. These are believers from every corner of the world. And guess what? This is God's plan A. This is not a change from what his original intention was. This isn't a deviation from what his plan was. God desired a very colorful bride for his son. And it's not an accident. Have you ever considered <coughs> that? I hadn't for years. This fact that, that, that would shape how we view Christians everywhere over the, all over the world in our own communities who don't share our culture, who don't share our distinct ethnicity or, or whatever else might be distinctive physically about us. This was God's goal. A vastly diverse people that he had redeemed from all over human history, all over the planet. But tragically, it doesn't happen. The command comes from God to Adam, to Noah, and it doesn't happen. Instead, humanity doesn't initially obey the command to multiply and fill the earth. They do this in Genesis 11. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. These are all the human beings in, on the planet right now. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And then it says, 
And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. This passage, this story, <laughs> is saying that humanity, in their refusal to fill the earth and accomplish God's purposes, decided that they were going to build a tower, a great city and a tower. They wanted to, this is literally the language here, assault the heavens with this tower in order to make a name for themselves in order to prevent themselves from being dispersed. This is not a humble play at unity. Don't be fooled by this. This is not some sort of effort at uniting people. They are all united right now. This is a refusal to accomplish God's purposes, and it really is wicked. It's wicked. Not only does it defy God's direct commandment to fill the entire earth, but it exalts a single image of mankind as the idealization of all humanity. And it is really ethnocentrism at its worst. It says, we have arrived. We are what it means to be human. And we are, ultimate, we are the ultimate purpose of all things. We will define reality. We will make a name for ourselves. And to do this, we're going to cast off God's definition of what it means to be human and make our own. And in response to this arrogance, God says, no. No, you will not do that. And he goes down, I love that line, <laughs> to see their little tower um, that they were trying to, to build up. And then he sovereignly fulfills the command that he's already given them twice, multiply and fill the earth. He confuses their languages, which is the seed that creates diversity on this planet. And so why does God do this? What does God have in his mind as he's confusing their languages? I think he has Revelation 7 in mind. He has that passage we just read about every tribe, every tongue, every people group. He has one bride in mind for his son. And it won't be of one people group. It won't be of one people group. It will include every nation, every tribe, every people, every language. But the tragedy here is that in response to this gracious act of God to disperse them, because of humanity's natural brokenness, this event at the tower does not result in God being glorified for his creativity. It should result in that. It doesn't. Instead, across the board, it results in abandonment of God and really, if we want to define it clearly, a hatred towards God's creativity in humans. Our response to God's gracious intervention, human beings' response to God's gracious intervention at the tower results in war, racism, and centuries of violence. Each people group from this point on develops their own false belief systems, their own false understanding of God, and they are driven ultimately by exalting themselves over other people rather than enjoying the glory of God's diverse design. And whether it manifests in slavery or whether it manifests in genocide, 
it is once again a return to Babel. It is embracing the old man, the old man's practices, like Paul was saying in Colossians 3. But if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you might at this time be inclined to say, well, hold on a second, Jeremy. Uh, Doesn't God tell his own people, the Israelites, to separate themselves from other nations and not to intermingle with them all? He tells them not to marry. He tells them not to interact, not to take on their their gods. (laughs) Why does he do this? Isn't this the same exact thing that, that I just attributed to the rest of mankind as being sinful? And the answer is, is no, it's absolutely not. In God's warnings to Israel, he is doing something completely different. He is protecting his people from the very corrosive sin that is infecting all of those cultures and keeping them down the path that they're going. And while he's protecting them, he is holding out his people as an example for his heart on, uh, towards all of the nations, all of the people groups. Let me, let me show you an example of this. Deuteronomy 10 says this. This is a command of God for the people of Israel. Deuteronomy 10. Love the sojourner, the foreigner. Therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Or Leviticus 19. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as a native among you. This is God telling his people, you shall love him as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. And this is what God thinks about the foreigner. This is what he thinks about the stranger, about the sojourner. He loves them and he wants his people to love them. This is God's heart. And so when Paul, thousands of years later, after God gives these commands, goes to, on his missionary journey, the Areopagus in the city of Athens, he says something, something so stunning about God's sovereignty over human history and how God's hand is the very reason that there are distinct nations covering the earth that it, it literally, I've missed it for years and saw it just in doing study for this sermon. It is so profound. Listen to what he says here. And don't just listen to what um, the, the Apostle Paul says. Listen to why God did this. What is God's motive in dispersing the nations? Paul says this in Acts 17. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life, breath, and everything. And he made from one man, this is God, made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. God made every nation from one man, um, Paul says here, and he, in doing that, determined the boundaries and the periods of time that every culture would live in. Why did he do that? What was his reason? What was he after? Paul says that they would seek God. That was what God's providence in human history was after the creation of different ethnic groups and people groups and cultures and languages. His design is very simple, that they should seek me. 
I want them to seek me, the one who made everything and the one who sustains every molecule in the universe. Paul's saying, people of Athens, there is someone out there and he's holding it all together and you've known this since the day you were born. There is someone holding it all together and that someone wants you to know them. He wants you to seek him. And God's work somehow in spreading out humanity over every corner of the planet is designed to accomplish this purpose. That in their distinct cultures, they would see the truth about God and find him and love him as he ought to be loved. But that doesn't happen. Paul's talking to the people in Athens specifically because it didn't happen. Humanity doesn't seek God. Instead, they reject him, which is why we are dealing with this word, this phrase, the old man, in the book of Colossians. This old man's practices constantly over history, corroding the human heart. And that's why we've got centuries of violence between nations, races, people groups all over the world. And you don't need any evidence. You just need to open up a history book. This is reality. So the question we have is this. How does God fix this? How does God fix the absolute ruination of his diversity and design that should be something we praise him for, but instead becomes a point of contention and fighting and hatred throughout history? How does he reverse this? How does he fix the old man? And how does he bring about, this is really the question, real, genuine peace? not only between us and God, which is huge, but between us and our brothers and sisters. How does he do this? Well, there's only one way, only one way. And the only way for him to do this was for God himself to enter into this ocean of evil called human history. And he clothed himself in the likeness of sinful flesh. And as a perfect sacrifice, he needed to drop all the way down to the bottom of that ocean, all the way to the very bottom of our hatred, of our wars, of our racism, all the way down, and he needed to be crushed by it completely. And that crushing looks a lot like a man on a cross who was betrayed by his own people and executed by people who weren't his, ironically. That crushing looks a lot like what's going on in this text. And as he's crushed under those waves, those centuries of violence and hatred and the judgment of God rightly do them, falls on his shoulders and he's crushed, he pays for them all, every drop of them, for his people, every single sin in this category and outside of this category is forgiven. And they are all freed because of this, this act. And in doing this, Christ, God in the flesh, creates a brand new man. Not a specific race or ethnicity, but a reality that pervades all of them, which is why Paul can say in Colossians 3, Christ is all and in all. Listen to Ephesians 2. Paul's talking directly to the Gentiles. They're in a church now. They've got Christian Jews that are next to them. He's talking directly to Gentiles who've come to faith in Christ, and he says this in Ephesians 2. Now in Christ, you... Gentiles, who were once far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one 
new man in the place of two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Paul's point here is that the division, really the main racial division in human history, Jews and Gentiles, according to this book, is completely erased in Christ Jesus. And God accomplishes this by killing the hostility between Jews and Greeks, and really between every ethnic group in the world, in and through the death of Jesus Christ. This is what the cross accomplished. So think about this. Jesus lays hold of this mountain of hostility that has defined humanity since day one, and he takes it on himself until it is all gone. And when it's finally killed, that mountain of hostility, when he's finally killed, that mountain is killed with him. All the wrongs committed by his redeemed people are punished in him, and they are forgiven in Christ Jesus. Paul says in Galatians 3, For in Christ you are all sons of God through faith. For as many as you of, of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female or and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. What God accomplished through the cross was a radically healed humanity. And you know what it looks like? It looks an awful lot like a family. It looks like a real family, and in fact, it is a real family. It is a family forever, God's family, whether male or female, whether slave or free, whether Jew or Gentile, or any other ethnic delineation in this world, all of us in Christ Jesus are one. And so as we put on the new man, Christ Jesus, in faith, we have to recognize central to our understanding of how we are in the body of Christ, we have to recognize that we are part of the same family, no matter who we are. There's something deeper than our biology that defines us, our personal history, our culture, our ethnicity, our gender, even our gender that unites us. And this belongs exclusively to the Christian. It doesn't belong to any other system of belief in the world. It belongs to the Christian alone. <laughs> because Paul says here, for as many as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, and we put on the new man, which means we vanquish racism from the church. We vanquish bigotry from the church because that's not who we are. And if you look in the book of Acts in this book, and you do a, a panoramic sort of view at how Christianity infiltrates humans from all over the world, you see that this is exactly what happens. First, the Holy Spirit falls on Jerusalem, filled with people who are ethnically Jews, but they all speak different languages because they're Greek Jews. They're from all over the world, and they're very, from very different cultures, and God communicates supernaturally through Peter to unite these different groups, which is, think about this, amazingly a complete reversal of the Tower of Babel. Instead of taking one language and confusing it, to disperse people, he takes many languages and he unites them supernaturally by unconfusing them so that they can hear the gospel for the first time. That was what happened on Pentecost. And instead of God dispersing people clinging to that one language, he is uniting one people now, one new man from many languages, many cultures. And then in Acts 2, we see the Samaritans who were universally despised by the Jewish people. 
They were despised and hated and abused and racially discriminated for centuries, and they received Christ Jesus and are reunited with their brothers and sisters in Christ. Acts 9, an Ethiopian eunuch comes to hear the gospel, and then he takes that gospel and infiltrates Africa with it. And then in Acts 10, when Peter preaches to the Gentiles in Cornelius' houses, which is really the first spark of a tidal wave of Christ infiltrating every part of Asia Minor and and Greece and Rome and really the whole world, nation upon nation, tribes, tongues, peoples of different color are united in Christ. This was God's plan for redemption from the very beginning. Now, Paul's looking to the Colossian people and he's saying, put off the old man. You're not children of Adam anymore. You belong to Christ. This is how we should look at our sin. We should embrace the fact that we have been radically changed. And here's the deal. Every sin that a believer faces, every single sin that a believer faces is a forgiven sin. Have you ever thought about that? It's a sin Christ has already paid for. Every sin that you deal with and struggle with has been forgiven in Christ Jesus. They've been paid for, which means two things. First, it means that you've already won the battle. You are called not to win a battle. Christ did that on the cross. You are called to live out his victory now. You fight forgiven sins and you fight from a position of the victory, the victor. Secondly, it means this. The only thing Satan can do to a Christian, and this is really awesome, is he can sanctify you. He can sanctify, the only thing Satan can do when he tempts you to sin, as a Christian, you flee to Christ. You run to Christ. You say, I don't want to sin anymore. I trust Jesus. I trust his promises and I want him more than I want the sin. And if you do sin, guess what you do? You run to Christ. You cling to Christ. You are always, everything Satan does to us as believers pushes us back in the arms of Jesus. He can only sanctify us, which must infuriate him, really. But you fall more and more in love with Jesus as a Christian because of everything that you experience. And I want to close with this. I want to close with three practical ways that in this text in Colossians, and really the others we've looked at, should help us to see that not only our standing with the cross of Christ, but really inform what diversity in the church means to God. What it means for us to embrace and love people who don't look like us. And if I'm honest with you, you don't need to be racist to be blind to this or ignorant to it. You don't need to be a bigot to, to, to not see this. When Paul says Christ is all and in all to Uh, and he's referring to barbarians and Scythians, the point is this. Christ has, he's Lord of every people group. He has redeemed all people groups. No matter who they are, they all belong to him, and he is the only one who is Lord and Savior of them, only one by which they can be saved. And he will, according to Revelation 7, dwell in every single people group that is ever inhabited on this planet from the beginning of time till the end. And so there are three ways that this text should focus our minds on the role of the gospel when we deal with this this specific aspect of the church. First is this. Race and any conversation around race has to be a gospel issue first. It has to first be a gospel issue. It isn't first a political issue. It isn't first a, a cultural issue. It is first a gospel issue And it means that Christians who are shaped by the gospel really believe that diversity is something that God has endowed the human species with. It isn't an anomaly. It's not a mistake. 
Diversity is something we should love and embrace and cherish because God thought it right in redemptive history to have verses like this. Christ is all and in all. No matter when or where you were born, no matter what color your skin is, this applies to us. There's something about humanity that is muted when we are blind to the beauty that God has sovereignly orchestrated his creation of peoples and tribes and tongues and nations and spread them out throughout the whole world. They reflect something about God that we would not see otherwise. His limitless glory in creating diverse people. And so we can't miss this. Secondly is this. If race is a gospel issue, and I believe it is based on everything we've read today, it means that if the gospel is not mentioned as a solution, the solution you have is only superficial and temporary. It will not solve the heart issue. The only true healing in this war is through the gospel of Jesus Christ. That doesn't mean we don't work with people across different lines of faith. That doesn't mean we don't fight for real change, practical change in culture and in government. What it means is as Christians, we have a unique responsibility. We know Jesus. We know him. And we know that peace only comes through him. So our ultimate purpose is seeing, um, is in seeing lasting and true reconciliation. It's in building by the Spirit the very family of God. One beautiful stone at a time. And the third thing is this, and it builds on what I just said. <laughs> Paul said in Ephesians 2, Now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He's talking to Gentiles all the nations of the world who were far from Christ and they didn't know the promises of Israel that God had given Israel. They didn't know about any savior. They didn't know about any kind of Christ that could rescue them. And it says that Christ brought them near to him through his blood. This is how, is, this is how people who are far off are brought near. There's only one way people who are far off are brought near, through the matchless blood of Jesus Christ. That is the only way. And so the question we have is, how far off were we? How far off were we from Christ? That he, what did he have to cross to get to us? The chasm between Jesus and us was infinite. It was infinite. Think about that for a moment. He had to cross forever to get us. He had to cross forever to get us. Jesus had to cross an eternity of shame and punishment for the wrongs that we've committed. And that was what he had to cross to bring you to himself, to bring you near. And so our response is this. We will go anywhere for you, Jesus. Anywhere. We will go anywhere for you. Um, and <clears throat> we will take this message to everyone everywhere. That's got to be the response of a heart that's been brought near. A heart that has seen Jesus by his blood cross an infinite chasm will go to the ends of the earth for him to proclaim that same exact blood to people who need it just as badly. They may look differently than us. They may sound differently than us, but they still need Jesus. And so this third thing is really simple. Whether it's in Kirkland Heights down the street or whether it's a neighbor across the road or whether it's in Mongolia, or Kenya, or another part on the other side of this planet, no matter where it is, we 
will go to the very end, according to Acts 1, to the ends of the earth. And the question we have is, have we been brought near by the blood of Christ? If we've been brought near by the blood of Christ, there's no other possible way to live out the joy we have in God than to be willing to sacrifice whatever it takes in order to see other people, no matter what they look like or sound like, to come to have faith in Christ Jesus and to believe and trust in him for who he is. That's our calling. You want to know what your calling is as a Christian? If you've been brought near by the blood of Christ, your calling is to bring others near by the blood of Christ. That's what we are called to do. Because Christ is all. And he is in all of his people in them. He will be in all of them. Let's pray. (coughs) Father God, we love you. And we desire right now for anything true about what we looked at here, and I pray that all of it is true and and right and good, Father, to penetrate the deepest parts of our hearts. This can't simply be something we hear. This can't simply be something that passes in our ears, sits in our minds for a day or two, and then falls out. We need to be gripped by who you are. We need to be gripped by the reality that you've just presented to us in your word, that that Christ in the cross had to walk through infinite shame and punishment in order to bring us near to him and his father. That was the only way. And he did that through his matchless, infinitely worthy blood. And so my prayer for these people, my prayer for my friends here is that we would be so completely gripped by joy in that truth that we would be willing to give up anything. For some of us, it will be going across the street. For some of us, it will be crossing an aisle in, a, in our workplace. For some of us, it will be going to another country for a week or for a year or for a lifetime. And so, Father, I pray that you would speak very clearly. This is a small group of people, a small family of believers speak clearly into our hearts what it looks like for us who have been shaped by Christ bringing us near to be his hands and feet in this world and bring other people near to him because he's the only one. He's the only one that can give them peace. He's the only one that can give them joy. We give you all the glory, Father God, in the name of Christ Jesus, amen.